Hello, and welcome to this Speedlisten installment of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast. I'm Richard Prosh. While my saddle pard, Paul Bishop, and I ride the trail together for our longer episodes, Speedlistens are occasional short podcast installments wherein we ride solo. Today, we're catching up with best-selling author Tony Healy. Tony writes the Harper and Lane crime series published by Thomas and Mercer, but is also the author of several novels in the Ralph Compton Western series published by Berkeley. He lives in Great Britain with his wife and four daughters, and in a Six-Gun Justice podcast exclusive, we'll be reading from his new Ralph Compton title, The Devil's Snare. Thanks for reining in under the virtual campfire for some informal conversation. You're perhaps best known for your Harper and Lane series published by Thomas and Mercer. Set in North Carolina, Detective Jane Harper often looks to psychic Ida Lane for help with her cases. So how'd you get started and where did your inspiration or idea from this series come from? I started off as an independently published author and um, I began with one short story, a sci-fi story. And then I thought, oh, I can do this. So I wrote another and I've, I wrote another after that. And I thought I can write these a bit bit longer. So with each thing, with each uh, story, I just expanded my skill set, I suppose, and just sort of learned how to write as I was doing it. And eventually I, I wrote a series um, called Far From Home and they were um, episodic uh about 10,000 words each i was doing like one or two a month and then i expanded that into novellas and um created this big series and then i was sort of done with sci-fi at that point and i tried my hand with a few other things but um the thing i really wanted to write was a police procedural i had an idea for a, a supernatural story about a woman who could lay her hands on a dead body and determine how that body had come to be there who that person was um all that sort of stuff but i couldn't get that story to work and i had an idea for a a detective um hunting a serial killer but that couldn't you know that just wasn't gelling and it wasn't until i sat but i I tried all different sort of ideas um any writer will tell you they've got a notebook filled up with random bits and pieces random ideas random concepts um, and eventually something sticks and uh one day i was just i was looking through my notes and i thought oh you know that character she could be the daughter of a victim of the serial killer and then the idea just sort of come together and that's how i started off with the the you know the inspiration for um the Harper and Lane series. I just sort of plotted that out. I had a, I had a pretty from the minute that sort of that sparked together. Um, I had a pretty solid idea of what I was going to do, and then it was just a case of um, plotting it out. Um, I'm quite a big fan of uh, things like Story by uh, Robert McKee. Um, you know, the, like film structure. I'm very interested in that, and then not, well, not just film structure, but um, story structure. The way stories are constructed, the way that things have an order to them, a flow, you know, and when when stories don't quite work or films don't quite um, come out the way people expected them to, half the time I think it's problems with structure, problems with um, how they balance one thing off against the other. I'm very sort of interested in that. So 
I do think you know whatever criticism uh, people might have, have on my work, um, the one thing they can't criticise me for is taking plot structure very seriously because that's something that I'm very very interested in. So um, I really sort of structured it well. Um, my friend uh, Bernard, he was uh, signed up with um, an agent in New York, and uh, he said, "Oh, I can make an introduction." So um, he do he done that for me, and uh, she said, "Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite quite happy to read what you've written." So I sent her I sent her Hope's Peak. It was called at the time In Her Skin. I, I still like that title, and she said, "Yeah, I really like. Yeah, I want to want to find a home for this." So uh, we sent it round, and eventually it ended up with um, uh, Jackie Ben Zachary at um, Thomas and Mercer. You mentioned your Far From Home series. Um, what style of science fiction do you enjoy most? Do you think you'll return to that genre at some point? In terms of uh, sci-fi, I like it all. I like uh, speculative. Um, my favourite uh, author is Arthur C. Clarke. Just, um, I think I've read everything he's written. But also like action adventure. Um, I like, you know, I'm a massive Star Wars fan, massive but I, you know, I love Star Trek. I grew up watching Star Trek. I probably came to Star Trek first before I, before I came to uh, Star Wars. My um, introduction to Star Wars was the 97 special editions. I saw all those at the cinema. Um, was absolutely blown away by them. And then The Phantom Menace come out. I, I know it has its uh, its haters. You know, it's a bit like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. But I've got to be honest... Um, when that was coming out, it was like, wow, you know, look, look what he's done with it. But so I like all that stuff. But I think, I think I did a lot of sci-fi. I wrote a lot of sci-fi, and uh, I just sort of got a bit burnt out on it, to be honest. But I, I would definitely love to delve back into a, a sci-fi series, maybe a, a, a big sci-fi series. I wanted to take a look at your other books before turning to westerns in order to kind of set the stage for this next question. Is it hard for you to switch genres or can you write a Western immediately after a thriller, et cetera? You know what I mean? In terms of uh, genre, it's not, it's not actually um, hard to switch at all. It's um, I think it's good. It's good for you. It's, it's uh, refreshing. Um, so switching to like crime thriller genre, that really sort of done me wonders really. And then uh, once I'd done the, the Harper and Lane series, I really, I really, couldn't decide what to write next and I just thought oh, I don't want to write the same thing over again I thought you know I don't want to peg myself into to one genre and then luckily the the you know I've always enjoyed westerns always um love watching them uh love reading them everything about you know even uh writing notes for my own western I've done that for years but you know when the uh, opportunity come up to write um westerns in the Ralph Compton series I just thought, oh, this is fantastic. And I I wrote, uh, I think it was like 10, 15,000 words opener of a novel um, and a plot idea. Um, and they loved it. So, you know, then they signed me up for free. Um, and as I'm recording this, I'm actually halfway through the third one. The Devil's Snare, a part of the Ralph Compton line coming out in June, is a revenge story that begins in Nebraska. What sets this one apart from a typical vengeance trail plot? What sets the Devil's Snare apart from uh, other, you know, revenge thrillers is that in this one, 
I've got a male um, main character and a female main character. I've got two main characters, and both of those have got their own reasons um, to desire revenge. So, I, you know, in a lot of revenge thrillers, you have one main character um, out, you know, out for blood. Um, but in this one, I've got the male main character. He's uh, Ethan. He's uh, out for revenge for something that happened many, many years ago. And then you've got the female main character. And she is out for revenge for something that's recently just happened. So her name is Myra, Myra Hart. And uh, seeking revenge for you know a, an old wound. And one is, is still going through, you know, go, experiencing loss and going through... Um, the pain of losing loved ones and feeling that that fire in her belly to to get retribution, you know. So um, that's what I thought was interesting about it. And then there, I've, I've managed to sort of throw a twist on a few things in there. So it's not it's not the it's not a straight up um, vengeance plot um, that people might think it is. It's it's got a bit more to it. Can you tell us some more about Blood on the Prairie? Blood on the Prairie um, is a pretty interesting one. Um, it's different to any other book I've ever written. Um, uh, it's about a, a man who, um, a man called Sherman, and he's a sort of hot-tempered um, gun hand, gunslinger, um, who ends up, he ends up wanting to give up his way of life and, and try something else. And then he gets betrayed and then left for dead. Um, but this isn't, this isn't a, a vengeance plot like the devil's snare. It's not as simple as that. It does have a vengeance element to it, but this is a man that instead of, instead of coming through a dark time to find vengeance, he comes through a dark time and redeem, you know, finds redemption, um, but along the way, old things get get stirred up again. Um, but he becomes a so he goes from being a gunslinger uh, and he becomes a houndsman. Who are some of your favourite Western authors? I've enjoyed several westerns um, over the years. True Grit by Charles Portis, Blood Meridian, also All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I was particularly taken with that that one, um, the Homesman by Glendon Swarfout. Uh, but mainly, I've enjoyed westerns um, as movies. The Coen Brothers adaptation of True Grit, Open Range, um, the Kevin Costner film is a is a favourite of mine. The Searchers, the John Wayne film, the Dollars trilogy, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, Fistful of Dollars, a few dollars more. And then as I got into my teens, I discovered Once Upon a Time in the West and The Magnificent Seven. You know, it just goes on. But um, all of those were a big influence on me uh, when it comes to writing my own Western. So what's coming up next from Tony Healy? Um, the Devil's Snare is out the end of June. Um, Blood on the Prairie is out in September. And Die Trying, which is the third book, which I'm currently halfway through writing, um, that comes out in November. 
got a hand a hand die the other the first two are done and dusted um, and obviously I'm writing the third one so I hand that in May time and then my plan is to write something original that's not a Western um, straight after that. We've got a bit of a treat here and certainly a first for us at the podcast. Tony's going to share the prologue to The Devil's Snare. Tony? Exclusively for this podcast, I asked my publisher, Berkeley if I could read a short section of the novel. They agreed. So here is the prologue to The Devil's Snare. Prologue. Glendon Hart leaned back in his chair and wiped his mouth with a napkin. His wife Celia had outdone herself that evening cooking the best rabbit stew he'd ever eaten. I am fit to burst, he said, patting his paunch. When they were first married, he had been lean and wiry, but since buying the land, building the house and settling down, Glendon and Celia had become comfortable. They'd had two children barely a year apart, and aside from the daily chores and stresses associated with running a farm, Glendon saw fit to enjoy the fruits of his labours now that he had earned them. I don't think I could eat another thing if I tried. Celia collected his plate. Glad you enjoyed it, she said, kissing him on the forehead as she headed for the kitchen. I'm guessing by that last statement you won't want a slice of pie then. That afternoon, when Glendon had finished work and stood washing his face and hands, he had watched Celia fill the pastry base with apples and sugar. With a swift but delicate grace, she had laid the lid on the pie and crimped the edges with her fingers so fast he couldn't work out how she got it to look so good. If he ever tried something like that, it would have ended up a mess for sure. But he could smell that pie now, fresh out of the oven, and wondered if he might be able to conjure up room for a sliver. Well, I never say never, as you know all too well, Glendon called through. Thought as much, Celia replied. He stood, patting his stomach again. Had any man on God's green earth ever eaten so well? He doubted it. Want some help? Celia appeared in the doorway. In here? Yes, ma'am. In the kitchen? He smiled. Yes. No, I do not. Last thing I need is you coming in here, breaking crockery and putting things where they have no right in being, Glendon Hart. He sauntered toward her. Well, wife of mine, if you do say so. They kissed, and as she parted from him, Celia gave him a gentle pat on the behind. If you want to do something, go check on those children of ours. I just know they're into something. How do you know that? A mother's intuition. They're up there getting into trouble. Glendon headed for the stairs. What if they ain't? Then they're thinking about it, Celia said. Anyway, they need to get ready for bed. He threw a sarcastic salute her way. Yes, ma'am, I'm on the case. Outside, the sky had darkened with just a glow of sunset on the horizon and the first glimmer of stars peeking through the black-blue firmament. Upstairs, Glendon found Maria sitting on her bed with her dolly, undressing it and talking to it in a soothing tone. She was five and precocious. Glendon wondered if there ever existed a child who was not precocious and reckoned there wasn't. What are you doing, honey? Giving Annabelle a bath. Oh, really? Glendon asked, sitting on the edge of the bed. Did she get herself into mischief today? She's always getting into mischief. 
He smiled. So what did she do today? Annabelle was mussing down at the river, Maria said, sounding far older than her years. Maria had been talking since the age of two and hadn't stopped. It had taken Matthew a lot longer to talk in whole sentences. Glendon guessed it was true that girls developed a lot quicker than boys. Maria was certainly smart as they came. He touched his daughter's hair. Mussing on the river, huh? In all the mud. Daddy, look at her. I can see that, Glendon said. Don't be too long bathing her though, honey. I think it's nearing bedtime. Your mum has sent me up here to get you to give you your marching orders. Okay, Daddy, I won't be long. Glendon turned to Matthew, who was sitting on the floor, practising with his cup and ball. Holding one in each hand, he sent the balls up and attempted to land them back in the cups with a single jerk of his hands. You're getting better, Glendon said, leaning against the door frame. Steadiest hands I've ever seen, son. Matthew shrugged as he practised with the cup and ball again. He was six with a thick head of black hair. He took after Celia's side of the family. Looked like her too. Maria resembled Glendon. She had the heart look to her. But Matthew was his mother's son and Glendon didn't mind that one bit. He happened to think the world of his wife and if looking at his children made him think of Celia, that was no bad thing as far as he could see. No bad thing at all. I want to have the fastest hands in the West, Matthew said. Why is that? Glendon asked, trying to refrain from smiling too much. So I can go learn to shoot with both hands, become a gunslinger, very best there is, Matthew said. Matter of factly, as if fame and fortune were destined to come his way the moment he was old enough to own a set of six shooters. I might be the actor the next Ashford St. Clair. I'm pretty sure he's in prison, Matthew. His son shrugged. Sherman Knowles then. I see, Glendon said, smiling. So that's why you're using the cup and ball. Yeah, so I can get as good with my left as I am with my right, Matthew said. The best gunslingers shoot with both hands. Maybe when you get a little older, I'll take you out, practice shooting cans with the rifle. Really? Teach you how to clean and load it too. There's a lot more to owning a gun than simply shooting it. Okay, Pa. Sounds like we've got us a plan, Glendon said. So how are you getting on with your books? I quit reading them, Matthew said, flipping the balls up once again and catching them both on the first try. Why? Matthew shrugged as he tossed again. It's boring. Well, that ain't the attitude to have, Matthew. Books are important. I didn't learn my words until later in life. Your mother taught me. I want you to know him before you finish school. I want you to know more than I did at your age. But it's too hard, Matthew said. Just because something's hard, don't mean you should give up on trying at it. Look at you and that cup and ball. It's all practice, son. That's all it is. With enough practice, you can do whatever the hell you want. Matthew considered this for a moment. Okay, Pa, I'll try. That's good, Glendon said. Now, come on, you have to get ready for bed soon. I know, just ten more minutes, Matthew said, please. Glendon nodded. Okay, then, ten more minutes. He went downstairs and found a slice of apple pie waiting for him. Celia was already eating hers, taking little bites with a fork her small mouth working in its tidy way. In all the harshness of the land in which they lived, in all the grit and mud, his wife was a smooth gemstone. It was Glendon's turn to kiss her on top of the head. Hey there. 
Are they set for bed? Celia asked as, as uh, he resumed his seat. I gave them their marching orders. Celia cocked an eyebrow. I'll take that as a no then. I gave him 10 more minutes, Glendon conceded. He picked up his fork and assessed the pie wedge. Now this looks good. You say that every time. Because it always looks good. Heard you talking to Matthew out there. Glendon chuckled. Damn kid reckons himself the next Sherman Knowles. Thinks he's going to be riding round, shooting holes in people for a living. Get his name in all the papers. I despair with that boy, Celia said. Hopefully just another phase. Yeah, hopefully, Glendon said. He used the fork to cut into the pie, lifted a piece to his mouth, but stopped dead in his tracks, listening. A sound rose from outside. At first, because it was only faint, he couldn't decide what it was. But seconds later, it drew closer and he, and he knew. Horses approaching the house. What is it? Celia asked. Something wrong with the pie? He set his fork down. Visitors, he said, rising, the chair legs squealing on the hard stone floor. At this hour? Celia asked, getting up also. Glendon opened the front door and waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness. The last light of dusk had, had evaporated now, leaving only the pale of night. A pile of black cloud passed in front of the moon, obscuring the light and preventing him from making out what, who was approaching the house. Then it passed, and in the moon's cool glow, he saw two riders on horseback. Who goes there? he called. Celia appeared at his back, whispering. Who is it? Don't know, he whispered back. He squinted in the din, trying to make out their faces. Then as the riders got closer, he saw the masks obscuring their features, the kind of masks bandits wore. Glendon ushered Celia back and slammed the door shut. Get upstairs, he growled. Now. Oh my God, Glendon, who are they? Just do as I say. Celia ran for the stairs. The sound of the hoof stopped. Glendon heard the heavy crunch of boots on the dry dirt outside the house. Glendon made for his rifle up on the wall. Unloaded because he worried one of the children would have an accident with it. He lifted the rifle down, then grabbed a handful of ammunition. He fumbled, trying to load it, his hands jittering. The floorboards upstairs creaked as Celia roused their son and daughter from their room, speaking to them in hushed tones he could not discern. No more footsteps from outside. A moment of silence when all he could hear was his own frantic breathing and his shaking hand struggling to load the rifle. The front door flew open in an explosion of split timber. Glendon looked up. The rifle wasn't loaded but he raised it anyway. A giant of a man entered the house. Three masked women followed him, pistols drawn, hammers, hammers cocked. The thin material of their masks sucked in and out as they breathed. There were no words, only their eyes, cold and dispassionate. Glendon backed away, still struggling to push ammunition into the rifle. He'd never been much use with a gun, never had much, much call for it. I don't know what you want, but you don't have to do this, he said fighting hard to keep the quaver out of his voice. You're trespassing on private property. One of the women aimed, her arm outstretched. Glendon barely had time to react. The woman fired, the bullet tearing into Glendon's left shoulder, knocking him to the floor. His rifle clattered away across the hard stone. Glendon groaned, 
throbbing, throbbing agony coursing through his body from the gunshot. He tried to get up, but the giant man who had broken through the door was already on him, his boot on Glendon's chest, pinning him. One of the masked women said, I'll get the others, and slowly climbed the stairs, her boots thudding on each step, spurs jingling. No, Glendon cried. No, there was no way out up there. The floorboards on the landing creaked under the woman's weight. He heard Celia's terrified scream. In a small part of his brain, Glendon thought that his wife could barricade the children in on, in one of the rooms to buy precious seconds. They could jump from a window. If they were lucky, they would land unhurt and make a run for it. Find their way to town and rouse the sheriff and his deputy. The giant pushed down harder with his boot and Glendon grimaced in pain. Moments ago, there had been pie. His children had been playing in their room, hurting nobody. Now his story was about to end. Right there on the floor he had laid, in the house that he had built, on the land he had brought with his own hard work and determination. It wasn't right. It wasn't the way it was meant to end. Another of the women followed her comrade up the stairs, smiling under her mask, enjoying every second of it. Glendon groaned in anguish. The woman who had shot him came to stand next to the man mounting, pinning him to the ground. She looked down at him, cocked the hammer back on her gun again, and aimed it at his face. Celia screamed again, then the children. The woman cocked her head to one side. It will be quick for them. You won't. They won't even know it. Please, he said, a tear rolling down his cheek. Please. Then the gun fired, and he said nothing more. I'd like to wrap up our conversation by pointing listeners to your website at https colon backslash backslash tonyhealy.com. That's T-O-N-Y-H-E-A-L-E-Y dot com. And I'll remind them to check out your crime fiction series at Amazon. Thanks to Tony Healy for hanging out and chatting today, and thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.